Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jay from Fulfilled. Today I'm talking with Brian Holmes, an absolute veteran of fundraising with more than 25 years experience. Today Brian specialises in philanthropy across major gift programs. Welcome Brian. Thanks Jake, yeah. nice to be here. No, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Tell us about the early days of fundraising, what were you doing? Uh, well, I began in fundraising about uh, well more than 25 years ago now, um, and I came in an interesting way. In fact, that uh, I responded to an ad from a consultancy, and uh, uh, and I remember the interview. Uh, the key question I remember actually out of that interview was, if you had to raise five hundred thousand dollars, how would you go about it? And, uh, and of course, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, so I just responded from what seemed to be common sense. And common sense to me was, well, I'd look for somebody who was capable of giving $500,000 and I'd go and ask him. And uh, so that was sort of seemed to be the right answer at the time. Uh, the difficulties in those early days, of course, was that, uh, you know, we're talking pre-internet, pre-Google. Uh, so it wasn't as, uh, as easy as going on to the internet and going, how do you do this? Uh, the local libraries didn't carry any books on fundraising. So everything I had to learn, I had to, actually had to learn from mentors and from asking people, how do you go about this? Um, but it seemed I had an, a fairly natural disposition. Uh, I guess, you know, if I go further back to that, I remember as a, uh, uh, as a young man being asked to join the fundraising committee of my local church. And uh, we sat around this table with all of these people and how are we going to raise this money f- for this new church building? And um, the, the reality is, we, you know, there were stories about, well, we could sell bricks or we could put on this event or we could have walkathons. All these things kept coming up. And I remember asking the simple question, why don't we just ask people to give? And everybody looked like looked at me like I was an alien, you know. But it always stuck to me that I believe that people are basically generous, so therefore the best way to fundraise is simply to ask people to give. Yeah, wonderful. Did you fall in love with fundraising right from the beginning or did it take a bit of time? Uh, it, it took a little bit of time. Um, I, I guess once I understood the dynamic and I, and I really began to, uh, I guess, step out of my world into other people's worlds and realise how generous people were, that's when it really clicked with me, you know, and I remember having in those early days times when I would actually, you know, I'd be talking to somebody and expecting that this is going to be a large donation and it resulting in a very small donation and and almost going, oh, why am I doing this? I might as well give up. But it was almost like the very next meeting then was somebody with a really generous spirit who all of of a sudden you went, wow, this person is just amazing. And so part of the attraction for me was the ability to, uh, I guess, meet so many amazing people with with very generous hearts. Yeah, great. So in 2004, you co-founded Exponential uh, with a partner, um, New Zealand, Australia's largest fundraising and philanthropy specialists. Um, how How does your team add value to your clients? 
Okay. Yeah, so in 2004, I co-founded with Craig Gravestein. Uh, Craig and I had actually worked together uh, many years ago. In fact, the first consultancy that I worked with, Craig and I had worked together, and we travelled sort of different roads over many years and uh, and sort of worked in different parts of the country even. And uh, probably 10 years uh, later, we sort of reconnected, and Craig was running a consultancy uh, and I was running my own consultancy by then, and we decided to join forces, and uh, and in doing that, become a national consultancy, and obviously grow to the to the level of the team we have today. I guess the way we really see ourselves adding value to the clients that we work with, which range across the not-for-profit board from charities to to medical research to the education sector, the arts sector, all of those sectors. Um, I guess really if you boil it down to the most simple area, it's we assist charities to raise more money um, quicker than what they could do on their own. And I guess that's the real value that somebody has when they come to a consultancy. It's, it is the ability to take a, uh, what a charity is doing and present that need, that cause, that case for support in areas that perhaps it hasn't done previously and see greater results for it. Yeah, great. Mm. And it's coming up 15 years. How's that journey been? Yeah, 15 years um, seems like uh, it's, it's flown by and uh, time does fly when you're having, having fun, I guess. Um, the interesting thing, I think, over those 15 years is that I've never stopped learning. And, uh, and part of that, I think, is, is because I have this fascination, actually, with what we do. So it's not that it's just, oh, this is my job, you know, and I put a formula in place. It's constantly being able to go, what's new? What's changing? And, of course, the world of fundraising is consistently changing, uh, very fast changing these days. And so, you know, it is a matter of, you know, you really have to be interested in what motivates people to give if you're going to enjoy this sort of work. Yeah, great. No, you've had an amazing career, um, and I'm really looking forward to getting into the nuts and bolts (laughs) of it. Um, You gave me your business card, your title read Philanthropist. Why is that? Yeah, well, actually, Jack, it reads philanthropologist, which is uh, is one often that people don't sort of quite pick up to start with. And I guess that's um, that's simply because many years ago I did look at it. I was trying to explain to my friends. They, they, would, they would always ask me, what is it that you do? And I found it was better to explain to them why is it that I do rather than what I do. And uh, so I started using this term philanthropologist because it sort of indicated, uh, as I mentioned before, the uh, both the fascination with why do people give with also the, the motivation of how do you get people to give. And so part of my work, I believe, is studying, you know, philanthropy and philanthropists mm-hmm. as to why they give and how I can cause them to increase that giving and be more generous. Yeah, great. And how does your work um, have the biggest impact on the clients you work with? Well, I guess the biggest impact is purely and simply the bottom line of the money. Um, The area of specialty that we've had over many years has has been primarily capital campaigns and major gifts. And that's seeking, I guess, large donations from high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals. And it's often an area that a a charity, a a not-for-profit organisation has little experience with. And so the ability to go in to take um, their need, their cause, translate that 
to, I, I guess, a, a large donor's perspective and then be able to present that in a way that these large donations come in can have an immediate Im- impact to what a charity is doing. Of course, it all boils down to need. You know, at the end of the day, it's not a matter of uh, can we can we get larger donations. It's about does a charity want to, t- or does a charity have a need to go to the next level? You know, what's going to transform that charity and its ability to fulfil its mission? Mm-hmm. And that's when we really get excited because we can see, okay, we can come in here and we can take that charity to the next level in what it's doing, the services it's providing, the people it's helping. And that's when it gets exciting, of course, because that's when you see involving others into that actually will change not only the the organisation, but it will change the world for the people that it serves. Yeah, great. And I'm sure any time you come in, there's this huge expectation and excitement that this is an area (laughs) that they really want to excel in. Um, But where do you start? You're You're walking into a fundraising team for the very first time and they're looking for your input. Do you lay out a roadmap or just where do you begin? Yeah, it's, look, the important thing is strategy. It's difficult in the not-for-profit world where, uh, you know, the board usually just measures things in terms of results. How much money did we raise? Anybody in fundraising, of course, knows that the end result usually requires a lot of work beforehand to get to there. And so the key thing, key role as consultancy plays is not only being able to lay out a strategy that it can attest to because, it, it, you know, in pure experience it said we've done this many times and we've seen how this strategy works. But it's also the ability to communicate that across both the fundraising team, the executive of the organisation, the board of, of, of the organisation, giving them the confidence that, okay, you know, this is a plan. It's, a, it's something that we're working through and we can tell them, you know, just exactly where, we're at, where, where we are at mm. and exactly where we are going. And it's better than walking blindly, of course. You know, at the end of the day, for most, it's a difficulty of, okay, well, we want to reach point X, we're at point B, and we don't really know what's going to come in between. Consultancy is able to fill in that gap and say this is every step that we're taking that will take us to point X. Yeah, great. So you're looking for small milestones along the way to the, the large mission, the larger goal. Exactly. And, and that's important to understand because every milestone needs to be celebrated. Mm. So, uh, I mean, for example, just recently we were, we were soliciting for an organisation, helping them solicit a $5 million gift. And uh, the result came back and they were only, the, the, the particular person we were talking to agreed to give them a million dollars. Well, the problem is you can be quite disappointed that we didn't get the $5 million, but on the million dollars, I mean, that's still a fantastic gift in its own right. But the other aspect of that is, as I, we were able to say, look, what this shows is that those that have the capacity to give in that seven-figure range actually are buying into the case that you're presenting with them, uh, them with. You're, they're buying into the need that you have and the impact that you need to have as, as an organisation. And so, you know, this is the first of many gifts that you'll get. And so the ability to go, okay, let's measure these milestones, you know, the milestone of, okay, have we, have we developed a case of support that is actually um, engaging, that people understand, that people feel, yes, this is something I will give to, is a milestone in itself. You know, the milestones of identifying those people who may give to this, you know, their milestones and understanding that process 
means that you know at the end of the day the gift is a is a given mm. it's just a matter of we've got to do this and this and this first and then do it yeah, yeah. well five million and one million are major amounts <laughs> yeah. what goes into getting a one million dollar major gift um look as i said it's you know, to me there is both a science and an art of fundraising at that level um, the science of it is, is, is really the strategy side of things. It's knowing what you are saying, how you're going to communicate that. It's, you know, um, you know is this a mo- an emotive case or is this more of a business case? It's identifying uh, who may connect with this organisation, who may connect with this need, and then, uh, I guess, developing the relationship between the two. Um, so it, 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 it's quite strategic to start with. And then it boils down to the actual art of the asking. And often we, we tend to involve sort of influential advocates, we like to call them. And, and that's where, you know, I, I try to say to charities, I'm actually the worst person in the world to ask for a gift, even though I know how to do it very well. Um, the reality is that what happens is if I'm asking somebody for a gift, I'm the easiest person to say no to. They're probably never going to have to see me again. I'm not even actually employed by the charity except on a contract. And so a consultant's the worst person to ask for the gift. Very important people like to be asked by very important people. And so that's where influence comes in. So what you do is you look for somebody who may be able to ask and maybe have to bring some influence into that ask. Influence to actually get the meeting in the first place and then influence to actually say, Jake, look, I've known you for a long time. You know, is this something you'd consider supporting? And by the way, when I mean supporting, I'm talking about a million-dollar gift. (laughs) And so it's somebody who can actually do that and the person feels like they have to consider that gift. Yeah, wonderful. Mm -hmm. I'm sure often it comes down to the level of the CEO asking or are there ambassadors or do you even go to the level of getting a celebrity in to ask? (laughs) I mean, who who should be asking for the gift? And that's part of the strategy, of course, is, who, you know, I use that word influence. Who's going to be able to influence this gift? And I also use the term very important people like to be asked by very important people. And so um, if you're asking potentially your largest donors to your organisation ever and you're just hoping to send in your fundraising officer to make that ask, the first thing that person is doing is sitting there and saying, so if this is so important to you and to your organisation, why are you here to ask me? Why is it somebody who's important here to ask me? So that means that you often have to engage the CEO or the chairman of the board or a board member. Um, outside of that, of course, what you might look for is an influential advocate. You know, and, uh, and I recall many times where we've actually sort of gone to somebody else and said, look, would you assist with this because we know you have the influence? I, I think of one particular story where... Uh, we wanted to approach one of, uh, uh, one of the top five people in Australia as far as wealth. And, uh, and again, it was for a very large gift. And um, we had no way of even getting that appointment. They had, no, uh, they had never given to the organisation before, but they had a real reasons as to why they should give to what this organisation wanted to do. And uh, along the way, we learned that uh, Bob Hawke, uh, unfortunately who recently passed away, but the ex-Prime Minister, uh, knew this person very well and that we could actually get to meet with Bob Hawke and talk to him. So we met with Bob Hawke and we said, 
Bob, would you be willing to make an approach to help us in going to this person and asking them for this large gift? And, uh, and so Bob said, yes, I would be. And of course, so when Bob rang the office and said, I'd like to meet with this person, got the, the meeting sort of within a week, you know, which was a, a big one to start with. And then we sent uh, Bob along with the CEO to do the ask. Um, the reverse side of that story, uh, or the, uh, I guess the lengthier part of that story, is that when Bob and the CEO rocked up at the office and uh, um, this particular person came down the corridor, greeted them, said, lovely to see you, Bob. As they're walking up the, uh, the, the hallway to, to his office, um, uh, the, the person we were seeking the gift from put his arm around Bob and, and Bob was not exceptionally a tall man. Um, and so this person was quite tall and put his arm around Bob and said, Bob, let's cut to the chase. What's this going to cost me? And at that moment, uh, even Bob Hawke sort of got a little nervous and sp- splurted out, well, we're hoping to walk away with at least a million dollars right now. And uh, at that point, the the person they were meeting with just gently wheeled him around by the shoulder and said, not a problem, Bob, just tell my secretary where to send the check. Wow. Well, it's pretty hard not to... Uh, it's pretty hard to show disappointment when they come back and they say, we got a million dollars. And certainly when it's an ex-prime minister saying, we've just got a million dollars, you have to be excited. But when you hear that they actually didn't even get to the office, they didn't get to sit down, they didn't even get to tell the story of what the money was for, it was really a go-away gift. <laughs> you know. Uh, but again, it, it shows that the plans work uh, but uh, I guess the learning out of that is that, uh, you know, you, again, you then use that experience to, to coach whoever's going next time and say, by the way, if they try to, you know, cut the conversation short, just say, hey, look, let me sit down and tell you all about it first. Yeah, so, wonderful. That must have been so amazing to be part of something like that. It is, and it's sort of like, you know, these stories are happening week to week, you know, within what we do. And when we work with, of course, uh, many different clients, there's many different people, many different reasons. And um, and it's part and parcel of, you know, the excitement of, uh, of doing that and certainly new ground. And, uh, you know, I, I guess one of the things I learned early in the piece, we were doing some work for a, uh, a regional hospital uh, in Victoria and... Um, I did two meetings back to back and it was like it was like a 44 degree day. Uh, I was still wearing a suit and tie mm-hmm. or dressed a little more casually today. And uh, I had two meetings. And the first was with um, a, a, a fairly elderly local dairy farmer. And um, when I sat down with him, he said, look, Brian, he said, I was born in this hospital. He said, I'll probably die in this hospital. My children were born here. My grandchildren were born here. I've had two life-saving operations in this hospital. It's time for me to give back. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be a super huge gift. Because then he went on to say, he said, look, I've had the best years ever, the last seven years for my dairy farms. He said, I took a whole bunch of my property. He said, I subdivided it I took, and it sold like hotcakes. I took all that money, put an investment in the city. That went gangbusters. He said, again, it's time for me to give back. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be a huge gift. And so because I was inexperienced that time, um, I, I hadn't set any benchmark of expectation. And so I said to him, could you give me an indication of what you're talking about? And he sat there for a moment. He looked, looked at me and he, he thought about it. And I'm thinking, geez, really considering the size of this gift. And then he just said, 500. 
And, of course, I'm thinking he's got to be saying 500,000. But I couldn't really go back to the CEO and the board and say, he said 500, so put him down for 500,000. And so I'm now sitting there going, how do I clarify this? So I, I asked it back to him as a question. I said, 500. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, $500. And he was really, really proud of offering $500 because it was apparent that in his world that was a big gift. He'd never given that before. You know, yet in my world I'm going, this is, <laughs> this is not what I need. And, uh, and, and so I was totally disappointed and I, you know, I couldn't think of any way to rescue that. And I said, look, you know, can I come back and talk to you a little later and, uh, and talk that through a bit more? My next meeting was with the local car wrecker. And uh, by now, of course, I'm going, why am I in this business of fundraising? So uh, I walk along to the, uh, well, I, I pull up at the local car wrecker. And, uh, and first of all, it, it's now about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the day. It's still really hot. The, the sweat's just pouring off me. Um, he kept me waiting about 30 minutes. Finally stuck his head out of his office door and said, well, I guess you better come in. And I'm going, this is, what's the point of this? And so he beckoned me to sit on the seat and it was uh, an, an old car seat on the floor. So now I'm sat there, I've got my knees up around my head. Uh, the sweat, I could feel it trickling down my back. And I just wasn't, you know, in the mood to sort of muck around. He said, so what are you here for? I said, well, look, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. <laughs> I said, I'm here. Uh, we're raising money for the new hospital. I'm hoping you'll give $10,000. And he said, yeah, okay, put me down for that. Yeah. And then I then I had the moment that said, you know what, I've got it wrong again. <laughs> and so I said, well, actually, we're, we're raising that money over the next four years, so I'm looking for $10,000 a year over, you know, for the next four years. And again, with very little hesitation, he said, no, put me down for that. Yeah. And um, so I, in those early years, I learned a lot, a lot of lessons, both about not judging a book by its cover, but also about setting expectations with donors uh, of what it is that you're looking for. And, uh, you know, I think that's been one of the key things that's led to our success over the years of being able to get these large gifts. Yeah, great. Awesome. Amazing examples there. Mm. Um, have you worked with, um, had to go into an NGO charity team and the CEO is the obvious choice to do the ask, but they're just a bit hesitant. They're not good at it. They possibly don't have that fundraising background. How do you lift that CEO? Yeah, I mean, there are two ways. I mean, one way is, of course, just coaching them through it. And often we will talk them right through and ask. Um, but the reality is in, in a situation like that, if you have somebody um, you know, who's not good at the ask, it probably is better to, to team them up with somebody who can make the ask in a good way. I still have the influence in the room, so the CEO is still there. The CEO can still talk about the passion of, you know, for why they're part of the organisation, what the organisation does, the impact it's having. All of that then is coming from that knowledge base, that knowledge source, the authority in the room, as it were. But then, then lead that into somebody else who can then say, look, the real reason we're here today is because we, we really need you to support what we're doing to take us to that next level. And then you allow somebody else to do the ask. So often we work with, a, with, with that sort of duo or even sometimes a trio of people in the room where we'll divide the roles. And all of that, of course, then is quite strategic. Who's saying what? Who's saying what? You know, who's doing the ask? Who's doing this role? You know, um, 
all of those things come to play and so you map it out. Um, but it is quite strategic, the, the actual moving into that ask, uh, that point of the actual ask itself. Yeah. What are some recurring problems you see within fundraising teams? Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you're working with a fundraising team because I guess uh, the consultant's role is to look at two things. And we've talked a lot about the community's willingness to give. Um, but, of course, there's also the organisation's readiness to ask. And so that boils back to where is the fundraising team at? What skills do they have? What resources do they have? What experience do they have? So how much work needs to go into the fundraising team itself to prepare them for successful asking? Um, it may be as much as going back to what are they working with as far as you know their case of support, the reason why somebody should give to this organisation. And I think the most difficult thing that happens within an organisation is often an organisation comes from the organisation's point of view. So... What I mean by that is they will go, we are a wonderful organisation. We've been around 100 years. You know, uh, we've done this, we've done that. You know, we offer all these services and it's all wonderful stuff. But at the end of the day, the donor is not there to support the organisation. The donor is there saying, but I want to change people's lives. And you're an organisation that changes people's lives. So what happens is sometimes an organisation is out there telling everybody how wonderful they are rather than about the real need and the people they help. And so part of the, the, the uh, I guess, our role is how do we move uh, things away from the organisation's view of, what, of the story they want to tell to the donor's view of what they want to hear about the organisation. And that's the key for us. It's, it's actually educating an organisation to get inside the donor's mind. And you can only really ever do that if you're actually talking to your donors. So one of the biggest things we find is where an organisation isn't actually talking to its donors, you know, it's sending its appeals out, it's, you know, it's doing its fundraising programs, but nobody is actually talking to its donors, then it usually disconnects and you have to reconnect them so they understand that. One of the ways I really like to do that, because I think that, that stems fundamentally from the board and the CEO. So one of the things I encourage every organisation to do is that the board and the CEO should really make two or three calls a year to donors, thanking them for their donation, their support of the organisation, and you know, telling them a little bit about the impact it's having, but also asking the question, so what is it that causes you to support us in particular? Because that's a, that's a, you know, there's nothing better than learning firsthand why somebody is giving to your particular organisation. And the stories that come out of that are not only will inspire those board members and the CEO, but also give them an insight to what is it that we have to be communicating to our donors. Yeah, great. So when you think, when you talk about the long-term goal compared to the small goals, those small milestones along the mm. way, so the long-term milestone, is that often just making sure the team's ready, um, the people in place, you know the message and you've already had a few major gifts and you just know what works. Yeah, the long-term milestone is actually seeing the results starting to flow through. Yeah. I mean, in some cases where it's a, a capital campaign or a, a defined program uh, for a, you know, uh, a specific need where you can actually put a dollar term on it, of course, that's when you can talk about the dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, when an organisation says we need to raise $20 million, $50 million to build a building, the job's not done until you've raised the money to build the building. And so... That's where the focus is that, you know, that's the end result. 
Um, but where it's a program that may be ongoing for, a, for an organisation and the fundraising team, it's simply knowing that they are now able to go out and ask for those gifts with confidence, that the story that they are communicating uh, is being accepted and that those, uh, those donors are now giving. And so then it almost becomes the numbers game of, well, how many donors can we ask? Because now we, know, we have the confidence and know they're going to give. Um, I remember one particular organisation, um, working with the, uh, the fundraising team there, and they had a donor who had given a very large gift. Of it was a half a million dollar gift to them uh, a number of years before. And uh, they had kept a, a reasonable level of relationship, but nothing very close. Certainly hadn't spoken to that donor uh, personally over those seven years. And they had a new, new project they wanted to get support for. And they said, well, look, he's, been, he's given us a large donation before. Let's go and ask him again. And we went in for the meeting. And, I, and because I was coaching and working with the fundraising team, I went along with the fundraising manager to meet this person. And as we sat there, he began to question everything about this project. And he said, look, I don't understand why it's costing that much. I don't understand why you're doing it here. He just wasn't buying into it at all. And um, uh, I could see the fundraising manager getting very, you know, disillusioned and almost sort of sinking <laughs> the whole time we were in there. And as the meeting went on, I realised that we weren't going to get anywhere with this particular uh, meeting. So I said, look, is it okay? Could I impose on you to get another 30 minutes of your time, perhaps in three or four weeks? And we will go away. We'll take everything you've said on board and we will then uh, see if we can bring this back to a place where we can communicate to you really why uh, this project is important and answer all your questions. I'm asking for nothing more than 30 minutes. And, of course, um, the person said, yes, that's fine. Come back to me in three or four weeks and I'll give you another 30 minutes. Mm. And uh, as we were leaving the room, um, I actually shook his hand and I said, "Uh, look, can I ask you, if we can convince you that this is a great project and this is the most most important need right now, the priority for this organisation, is it something you would consider supporting? And uh, he said, look, and he almost laughed at me. He said, if you can convince me, then yes, I'll consider supporting it. And so three or four weeks later, we went back. We'd taken all of the, his questions. We'd answered all of those, ran through it again. And by this time, he was starting to understand, wow, all right, I get a little bit of an idea of how this is going. And he had a few other questions. and uh, But much more positive meeting. Uh, the fundraising manager, of course, the first time had gone out, gone from when we were out on the street saying, oh, well, that was a disaster, wasn't it? To now going, oh, there's a little glimmer of hope in this. And at the end of that second meeting, again, just knew that it wasn't quite the right time. So again, I said, one, once more, would you give us 30 minutes? Just one more meeting. I won't ask again, but once more, would you give us one more meeting. And again, as we were leaving, and I said, and I'm still hoping that we can convince you to the place that you would support this. So again, three or four weeks later, we went back. This time, totally engaged, understood everything about this particular project, understood the need, agreed that it should be the priority. 
And I was just about to sort of take my deep breath and say, remember what you said? And he said, and before you say, (laughs) will I support this? Yes, I will. And again, what he did, while we were going to ask him for a gift similar to what he'd given last time, he actually nominated a gift that was twice the size of his previous gift. And so, you know, it it took a little bit of time. It took took engagement. But bringing that fundraising manager along on that journey meant from there, no longer did they feel that, you know, a no was a direct rejection. You know, the no, when you get a no in fundraising, that's when the work begins. You know, the yeses are the easy bits. The noes are when you say, okay, now I really have to start working hard to make this happen. You've been involved with fundraising for 25 years, which is an amazing feat. Um, you've got great knowledge. Um, you're knowing what you're doing around major gifts in and out. What You've already expressed some of the success stories you've had, but what's another one that comes to mind? What made it successful and what were you extremely proud of? Yeah, I I, I guess, I mean, look, the individual ones, you know, uh, uh, are war stories. You know, they sort of make up, okay, over the years we've had so many different uh, types of experiences with individual arts. it's interesting, you know, I was, I was talking recently to a bunch of uh, fundraisers doing a training workshop and and I showed them a, a, a table of gifts of a particular program we run where we, I think it was something like three and a half or three and a quarter million dollars that we raised for something. And there was about 130 gifts went into making up that amount. At the bottom of the table, there was a gift of $15. Now, it might seem strange to get a gift of $15, but what I said was this gift was actually the gift that I was proudest of in that particular project. Uh, the reason being that along the way we had spoken to somebody about giving a large gift and um, he had gone home and spoken to his family, uh, and including his, uh, I think she was 10 years old, his 10-year-old daughter, about what you know, we were looking to raise this money for. This 10-year-old daughter his 10-year-old daughter turned to him and said, Daddy, I want to give as well. And she, what she gave was it was a three-year pledge program, so she actually gave $5 a year, which was the money that her grandmother would give her for her birthday every year, and her grandmother had recently passed. You know, and it's, it's the stories like that when you hear of, you know, and you know, certainly as a 10-year-old sort of engaging in philanthropy, as it were, it's not the size of the gift, it's the story about it. You know, uh, it's those tear-jerk moments that sort of go, wow, you know, there's nothing I could do to get a five, ten, you know, $20 million gift that would match the experience this young girl had who said, I want to give $5 a year. You know, I, I've sat and had cups of teas with little old ladies who have apologised to me for not being able to give more than they're giving and then given something that's clearly very, very generous on their heart, on their part. And again, it may not be in the, you know, those six, those seven-figure gifts, but it's a gift that you go, wow, this is something that somebody is doing as a sacrifice, you know, because they have a, a really generous spirit and this is something that's touched their lives. And so... For me, you know, if somebody gives a million dollars, you know, uh, and they have the capacity to give a hundred million dollars, but some a young girl gives fifteen dollars, I know what gift I would choose every day of the week over those. I guess overall, the real excitement for us is, of course, when we see, you know, 
complete projects uh, fulfilled and the results behind that. You know, so, um, you know, over the last few years, we've done three projects with Ronald Donald House in various states, you know, and, and totaling well over $60 million, you know, and, and seeing us work with a client multiple times and seeing multiple results and knowing that what you're doing, even though you've had to make adjustments in each case, continues to work. And I guess at the end of the day, that the people who give to those actually feel like they're doing something wonderful out of it as well. So, uh, you know, that to me is, is, is probably the part that sort of keeps me excited about, okay, you know, what's next? <laughs> yeah, great. And often it's uh, hard to forget about the bad times when things didn't go right. Um, but what are some of your greatest lessons over those years? Yeah, the greatest lessons, I guess, are, are simply making sure that we're prepared for everything. Um, you know, uh, when I think of bad experience, I, you know, I was sitting with a fundraising manager. We went to approach um, the CEO and, uh, and he was also a chair of this particular company um, and, and to talk to him about giving a large gift. And uh, uh, I sort of talked with, through the fundraising manager, this is your role, this is my role. They were an experienced asker, so I was there to do the ask. But, of course, they were there to sort of express the passion and the cause. And I said, well, and because you're from the organisation, I need you to open up with a small talk. So when you're in there, sort of, you know, just, you know, engage in a little bit of small talk for a, for a few minutes so that we can settle the room and make everybody comfortable. And we, we arrived at this person's office. We got ushered into the boardroom and, um, you know, we sat around that table and he came in and, you know, nice to meet you, nice to meet you. And the fundraising manager started with this, this question. So what is it that you do here? Now, the inflection in the voice was personal. You know, what is it that you do here? Um, it wouldn't, wouldn't have mattered if it wasn't. I mean, we had done all the research. We knew who we were talking to. We knew, we knew what the company did. We knew the whole history. But they had chosen the wrong question to ask uh, somebody like that as small talk because his response was simply, if you don't know what I do here, what are you doing here? Mm. You know, and that was one that was, you know, the, the room sort of turned all of a sudden <laughs> fridge cold. Uh, there was no recovery from that. And so I guess, you know, uh, I, I've seen time and time again where we've been ill-prepared um, and somebody hasn't been coached through, well, this is what happens or how it can happen. And that may even be come, come down to, you know, the end of a conversation where somebody says simply, uh, you know, a potential donor simply says, well, let me, have, let me think about that, you know. And, and if somebody's not prepared to, what do you do when somebody says, let me think about that? How do you take the conversation from there to still being able to close this at some point? You know, then, you know, then again, you failed. You know, at that point, if people leave the room and go, okay, well, yeah, come back to us when you thought about it, you know, again, you know, so there's so many different ways that things can go wrong. Um, but each, each one of them is a, is a learning experience. And so what you're always trying to do is preempt every one of those sort of situations where something could go off the uh, off to a tangent or or off the rails and bring them back to it yeah great what do you think's changed the most in donor engagement over the last 25 years 
Okay. Well, well, there's a lot changed. I I, I recently wrote a magazine article talking about some of these changes. I mean, the reality is we live in a busier world, an increasingly more mobile world. Um, Just getting meetings with, you know, uh, busy people is very difficult. Um, So that's a hindrance even to an asking process. You know, actually getting in to go and talk to somebody uh, and to meet with them to actually ask them could take a whole lot longer than it ever took before. Uh, Getting that decision then takes longer because, again, these days a lot of uh, philanthropy, certainly the top end is planned philanthropy, and there are other people involved. You know, I've heard quoted that, you know, 60% 60 of big gift decisions are actually made uh, in conjunction with somebody's partner, you know, their wife or their spouse, uh, you know, so it's not just, oh, I'm meeting in this room and I'm asking you, they're going away and having to talk to somebody. And so all of these things take, uh, you know, much more time. Um, the, you know, the, the other side of what, uh, what has changed enormously, of course, therefore, from the time perspective is the engagement and the involvement of influential volunteers. You know, I, I can still remember the days when we could get, you know, 10, 12 high-powered business people around the table once a week, talk to them about who they might be able to assist us with art to, to, to ask, and, uh, and they would come in and out for, you know, uh, eight, ten weeks and, uh, and help us from that point of view. And then it went to, well, we could meet every couple of weeks, and then it went to once a month, and then it went to, hey, we can't get anybody together in a meeting, you know, unless it's once a quarter perhaps. And so all of that means that you have to change how you work with people. So you now no longer work with committees. You're working one-on-one. That means more time, more effort. So all of these things are actually a challenge to a consultancy because if things are taking longer, you know, essentially what it means is it costs more for have a, to have a consultancy engaged. So one of the key things that we've been trying to do recently is take all of that IP, all of that knowledge, and then also use new systems today in how we deliver that. So one of the big changes over those years has been that all consultancy was one-on-one. I sit here, I talk with you, I coach you through. Oh, I've got something that might help you with that. Um, but today, of course, with the ability for people to go online and to log in and to use various aspects, uh, we're working very hard with some of our US associates and, and other sort of experts around the globe to move this IP and much of this experience as possible online so it can be communicated from there. I guess a little bit like what you're doing with these interviews Mm. in trying to, you know, rather than people having to come and sit in a seminar and hear somebody talk, they can log on and go, wow, okay, I've got some, you know, I've got a whole range of people here who I can listen to and get that experience from. Yeah, great. Mm. What do you think still remains true to engaging with donors? (sighs) What still remains true? Um, well, f- fundamentally, certainly in, uh, in the, the philanthropy area, um, you know, you have a 75% better chance of, of getting a gift if you're sp- speaking to somebody face-to-face than any other way. Um, it's not the way generally people like to do it because we all sort of like to feel we can pick up the phone or perhaps we'll send a letter and, you know, so part of our work is... Uh, is steering that back to a face-to-face, but that's that's the number one, is that um, you, you stand a much better chance the, the more that you engage somebody on a personal level. Number two, of course, is 
if you don't ask, you don't get. And, uh, and I guess I've seen numerous situations where we've seen a team go out and come back and gone, just didn't feel like it was the right time to ask. You know, and I remember working one particular uh, major organisation and they said, oh, we have a board member. He loves asking people and uh, we want to use him. And I said, okay. And so the fundraising manager and this board member went out and they came back, just didn't feel it was the right time to ask. Okay, next one. Came back, just didn't feel it was the right time to ask. And this was, you know, repeated three or four times uh, until we then began to realise that there was an issue with the board member and, you know, although they were saying they'd love to ask, they just didn't, didn't actually like to get to the point of the ask. But the bottom line is all of those people they visited, if you get a call from an organisation and they say, look, you know, one of our board members and also, you know, a member of our fundraising team wants to come and meet with you, that donor is sitting there waiting. <laughs> They've known already. If they said, yes, okay, come and see me, they're expecting. And when you walk out of the room and you don't ask them, they go, well, what the heck was that all about? All right, I've had a nice little visit and a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, but they didn't actually get the ask and when they were expecting it. And so, you know, people expect to be asked. And, and in fact, I think it's disrespectful not to ask them. It's certainly you need to respect if they have questions or they have issues that they want answered before you get to that point. But not to ask somebody is disrespectful. Why do I say that? Because it's all about how you look at asking people for money. And if your approach is I'm here to try and get some money out of you, then you will naturally slip back to, oh, you know, I'm not getting a good vibe here, so I'm not going to ask. If your approach is, I'm here to give you a marvellous opportunity. I'm here to make your day today. You, By giving, you are going to have a sense of fulfilment that you cannot get in any other way. If your approach, your mindset is going in saying, I'm here to give you an opportunity, you're going to want to give that opportunity no matter what's happening in that room. And so, you know, that's probably the third most, well, I say third, but it's as important as anything else, that to understand that you are providing people with an opportunity to give, an opportunity to feel generous, an opportunity to feel fulfilled uh, is really important. Yeah, yeah. great. Wonderful answer. Yeah. Um, so you've been heavily involved with the Fundraising Institute of Australia over the past 25 years, um, national chairman, national deputy chair, state president, national treasurer. How has this helped develop you as a fundraising philanthropist? Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I think, Jake, when we spoke earlier, I mentioned that, uh, you know, when I started, I had no access to any sort of professional development tools whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so when, uh, when I became part of the Fundraising Institute and began to understand, you know, what their goals were as far as, uh, you know, lifting the professional uh, well, lifting the profession, uh, lifting the ethics, lifting the regulation uh, and uh, everything that flowed around making fundraising better, uh, that was something I really wanted to buy into. Um, and so I did engage with them. And, I, yes, I, I have sort of been an enthusiastic supporter. And, and I guess, you know, part of that is then putting your money where your mouth is and volunteering to, to assist wherever you can. And, uh, and I've enjoyed doing that and still do today. Uh, you know, uh, Craig Gravesley, my partner, myself, you know, we just completed a, a, a five cities, one day workshop in each city, um, all, um, you know, at no cost to the Institute, but 
purely because it's an opportunity to give back and to, and I guess to start providing some of that experience and training to the next generation of fundraisers is really where, where I guess I see it. So, yeah, look, I, I'm a great believer in the professional body and I think, you know, uh, I've seen today um, that, you know, the, the Institute is more influential than ever before, offers much more uh, development and education to its members than ever before. And I'd like to feel that part of my involvement at the executive level has been instrumental in, in helping to encourage that. Yeah, and when you do these workshops, what's reassuring to you knowing these young fundraisers coming through? Well, look, it's... <laughs> I guess it's exciting because there is a hunger. That's what I like. I mean, you know, uh, for somebody to come and spend, to be honest, to come and spend a day listening to my monotone voice talk about, you know, what what it is that you need to be doing, uh, sometimes I sort of go, wow, you know, why would somebody pay money to do that? Um, But it's the hunger that they have to sort of go, okay, I need to be able to do my very best in this particular area. And so you, it's not just a matter of coming in and sitting through a seminar or sitting through the workshop. They're really very actively engaged in saying, okay, you know, what do I do here and how do I do this? It's almost like they draw it out of you uh, because of that hunger. And that's exciting because what it means is, um, again, it boils back to why do I call myself a philanthropologist? Because I have a fascination with what causes people to give and motivates them. And I see uh, some of the next generation of fundraisers coming through going, this is not all about how do we raise more money. This is all about how do we, cre- how do we, we, how do we create in Australia a greater culture of giving a greater culture of generosity. And so you can see that is within them, that it's part of their own generous spirit that they want to learn how to develop. So what do you think will change the most in the next five to ten years in fundraising? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Jake. Um, I guess, you know, the reality is we live in a world where there is a wealth gap. Um, and that's not going to change. In, in fact, that's only going to grow. What I mean by that is, you know, if you take the adage, it takes money to make money, so therefore those with money will make more money. Uh, but others who have no money, they don't get that opportunity. They'll stay exactly where they are. So the gap will continue to increase. What that will mean in the area of philanthropy and big gifts is the gifts are getting bigger. It sounds like a song, doesn't it? <laughs> um, the gifts will get bigger. I mean, that's the reality of it because more high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals will have more capacity. Uh, They'll have more uh, ability, uh, more funds that they are just simply not using. So as long as we can continue to grow in Australia a culture of philanthropy that keeps talking about being a generous society, then what will happen is as those people engage, they will, they'll get that feeling of fulfilment. They'll get that joy of giving and they will continue to give. Uh, again, statistically, we see that, you know, most major givers don't give their largest gift till about their seventh or eighth gift. And so because there's a growing education on, wow, this feels good, I'll do that again. Wow, I gave more and I felt even better, I'll do it again. And and so we're going to continue to see that with the with the wealth gap widening. Um, you know, I'd love to say, you know, say it would be different, but I don't see it 
being different. I also think it's it's a reason why it's important for uh, in Australia that we we actually really work hard at generating that 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 spirit of generosity, that spirit of philanthropy, because you'll you'll achieve a whole lot more by encouraging people with money to give than you will by trying to tax it from them mm. because first of all if you tax it from them it goes to the government mm. you know and, and that's probably the most inefficient way to spread it if charities can learn to approach those that have money and encourage them to give we're going to see a whole lot more change to the less fortunate in our society too that that's my opinion anyway mm. um, i guess the you know the the other area is really i i think uh we're still going to we're going to struggle with the the direct mail appeals and certainly donor acquisition, um, because you know because we have this movement to online, we have this movement to less engagement, as it were overall. Uh, charities, certainly those without big budgets, will struggle. Um, you know we we've seen face to face street uh, charity fundraising as an opportunity to acquire new donors because we're able to engage them. But, of course, only the largest charities have been able to do that. So smaller charities are going to have to go to much more relationship fundraising basis of really working hard on building the relationships with existing donors because we're going to have to see, uh, I guess, an increased result out of our existing donors to offset the difficulty of getting new donors coming in all the time. So what does the next five years look for Brian Holmes? Uh, Well... The next five years potentially could, I guess, could potentially look at some level of retirement. I mean, uh, uh, not that I'm planning it uh, at the moment, but, uh, you know, I'm certainly planning the next generation, even within our team. Um, you know, the next five years will probably see me move back to uh, a lesser hands-on role in working with our clients to, uh, I guess, um, uh, an even greater overview role in really coming in uh I guess in the, the way any grey hair can and sort of going, well, you know, in my experience, in the old days, this is how we do it. Um, so I, I certainly see that uh, as a movement. Um, I'd like to have more time to work with the the charities that I personally am involved in. I'd like to have more time to spend uh, training that next generation even within the industry and, uh, and working with them. Uh, so I guess it's more moving out of the career moving into, dare I say, the older statesman role uh, within the industry and uh, uh, of bringing that next generation through. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, Brian, we're down to the last question. Oh. Thank you so much for coming on today. <laughs> um, your knowledge has really shone through. It's really great advice for fundraisers out there. What's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfill fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world? Wow, that's a, that's a big sentence there, Jay. <laughs> Uh, final piece of advice. Um, look, I, again, I come back to this mindset. I, I learned long ago, uh, and again, um, you know, I, I said to you, I, I, I had to learn by listening to others. And, I, and it wasn't just other fundraisers. I learned from other sort of business leaders, etc. cetera. And um, uh, I was reading a book by Bob Buford, and, uh, and it talked about moving people from success to significance. And, and it, was, it was a term I've learned to use over, over the years. 
So when I would go and talk to somebody, I would say, look, I'm here to talk to you because you're a very successful person. And they would go, oh, thank you for recognising that. And then I'd go, but what I want to talk to you today is about becoming a significant person. And sometimes they might ask, well, what do you mean by that? Or they would go, you know, a quizzical look. And I'd say, look, let me explain what I mean by that. A successful person is somebody who adds value to their own life, but a significant person is somebody who adds value to somebody else's life. And that seemed to me to always engage people that, you know, yes, you know, I've looked after myself, but now here's my opportunity to add value to somebody else's life. And I think, so again, when it boils back to that mindset that we need to have moving forward, I would encourage a fundraiser, if if you're in a job where it is all about the dollars and you're told you've got to bring the dollars no matter how you do it, you're in the wrong place. Or if you're a fundraiser and that's your motivation is all about the dollars, you're in the wrong place. It's not that the results aren't important. They are. They're very important. But it needs to be about am I giving somebody an opportunity today? You know, when you wake up in the morning, do you feel good about what you're doing in asking people to give? And do you understand the bigger issues that you're actually giving them an opportunity and you're changing our culture day by day with every ask that you do? And uh, and I guess, you know, that's what keeps me doing what I'm doing and still engaged. And, uh, and I would encourage anybody who wants to do be in fundraising for the long term, that's the mindset you need to engage with. Uh, if you're going to really feel good about what you've achieved. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Cheers. It's Thank a you. pleasure, Jake. No, you. wonderful being here. Thanks.